Testing one, two. Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. Trust you had a wonderful weekend. Excited to come back to class. Amen. We're privileged to have Dr. David Church with us this evening. He's director of the Leadership and Ethics Program. Let's welcome Dr. Church. Amen. He is risen. Let's try that again. Let's with excitement. Amen. He is risen. Amen. We believe that. Let's stand this evening as we sing in some songs. Our call to worship come, comes from Psalm 47. Psalm 47 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. And that's what exactly what we're going to do this evening. We're going to sing to Him a psalm of praise. Let us worship. Amen. You may be seated. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with you this evening. I hope that all of you got a handout as you came in. Let me see your hand if you didn't. Everybody have one? Okay. Um, I understand that the theme for this uh, quarter is that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of sound mind. Um, those of you that know me well might know that I love to ride motorcycles. Uh, this uh, Harley that you see up here um, is like the one that I used to have. We called the Purple Passion. My uh, brother and I uh, started riding motorcycles back in the 60s, and uh, he uh, went one way, I went the other. He now owns a motorcycle bar and uh, a tavern and a motorcycle. He had just sold his motorcycle manufacturing company a year or so ago, uh, but uh, we have this common bond that we are passionate about motorcycles. Um, some uh, years ago, I found myself uh, living in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and uh, my wife and I were there for three years, and I would not say that I was the smartest person, but I was out with my motorcycle on the streets of Sao Paulo. Some of you know what that's like. And uh, I was on my motorcycle, and suddenly my memory, as I'm thinking about this, is completely blank. Uh, something happened, and when I came to, I thought I was in heaven. Everything around me was white, and uh, I was frantically trying to communicate with somebody. I was strapped to a board and I couldn't move. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. Pretty soon there's this uh, Brazilian lady that sticks her head in the tube and uh, starts yelling at me to hold still and all that in Portuguese, of course. And I thought, I really have wound up in heaven. And my, one of my first thoughts is, my wife is going to be so happy 
they're speaking Portuguese. So it was one of those times when you're just totally engulfed in fear. Have you ever had one of those times? When it's an emotion that rises up in you, it doesn't have any basis in logic, uh, it's just there, right? You just feel it and it consumes you. Uh, I know some of you are getting ready to uh, leave NBC in the next few days. I saw in the uh, bookstore, what, five days to graduation? Oh, that was yesterday, April Fools, I guess. Uh, but just a few more days before graduation, and uh, I think for all of us, there's this sense of, what about tomorrow? What happens when I leave this place? God has blessed me, he's called me, he's sending me, but to what? And what will I do? And so this evening, I would like to talk to you uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, I know that uh, many of you have studied Deuteronomy as you've been here at the college, and uh, probably know about the Ten Commandments. How many, everybody knows about the Ten Commandments, right? Probably if I asked, some of you could even quote them for me, or at least get the first few. But how many of you know about the Four Commandments for Kings? Have you studied that? No? Well, I think that's an important passage because I think we are all kings and priests and queens, some of you. Um, actually, in Revelations, we see uh, this passage that says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. And in verse 5, it says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of earth unto him that loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are kings whether we feel like it or not, whether we act like it or not, whether you know it or not, God sees you as a king. Or, as the case may be, uh, maybe a queen. Obviously, the passage is... Uh, neutral in gender. So we are talking about kings and what it is that God has laid out for kings. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17 together and let's uh, read this passage. It should be on the back of your uh, sheet if you can't see it up here. And when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and taken possession of it and settled in it and you say let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He is not to accumulate large 
amounts of silver and gold. Ah, how did uh, Israel do with that? We'll talk about that in just a minute. But there's some rules here that when they choose a king, and there's a whole sermon here about God allowing them to have a king even though it wasn't his best plan for them, right? But when they are to have a king, here are some rules. And I think that as you leave this place and you go into ministry and as you are a king over the domain and the sphere of influence that God gives to you, these rules are good for you and for me. And I think we can learn from this passage of Scripture. As we want to be productive in reconciling the world to God, what are some of the rules that we have to deal with? Remember uh, what uh, Queen of Sheba said to Solomon about the purpose. She says, Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. We also read in Micah, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? That you act justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So as we leave here, and as we are endeavoring to reconcile the world to the Lord, back to God, these are some rules that we need to take into account. Now I've looked at this from a uh, football perspective. I'm from Indiana. Occasionally Notre Dame has a good football team, right? Uh, and, but when they play football, there are certain things that are out of bounds, right? You have this football field, and you have areas that if you go over here and play outside of bounds, it doesn't count, right? It's not good. It doesn't work. And so um, I would like to look at these four rules that are laid out here as being outside the bounds of what it is we are to do. As kings and queens, we are to glorify God by being and making disciples. Can we agree that maybe wording is different, but essentially that's what we are here to do, right? We are here to glorify God, to be disciples, and to make disciples, right? So let's look at the, the, the rules. Here is uh, the first one in Deuteronomy 17, that the king must not acquire a great number of horses. What is that all about? What do you think acquiring horses has to do with anything? What does it have to do with making disciples? What does it have to do with you? Well, think back, if you will, with me. Here is this group of slaves that God has delivered, and he is setting them in motion. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He starts to tell them how to be a people. He gives them rules and regulations. 
And when he starts talking about horses in that day, that had to do with military might, right? So acquiring horses was about lack of dependence on God. It was saying, don't go to the place where you aren't dependent on God. You need to always be operating in this zone where you need God. And so if you go back and you read and you remember here, they had judges that were judging over them. And, and those people, they called on God as they needed, needed him to defend Israel. But now when they start to have a king, think Solomon, if you will, and he becomes the king, what does he do? Here the smartest, most wise, maybe not smartest, but the most wise person to ever live, what does he do? He begins as their king to accumulate horses. First Kings chapter 10 says that he had 1,400 chariots, he had 12,000 horses, he had so many horses that he had to have them in different cities all over the nation so that he could maintain them and he could maintain the military might. Do you think Solomon was dependent on God? At that point, he had, he had built enough wealth and enough power and enough security that he could depend on his own strength. Not only that, he went back to, to uh, Egypt, bought horses, and sold them to his neighbors, and now the Israelites are arming the rest of the world. Kind of sounds like the U.S., doesn't it? Uh, do you trust in God alone? As you think about the fears of the future and what is out there, God wants us to trust in Him. Our security and trust are to be in Him. If we are putting our security and trust in dollars and lands and houses and, and 401ks and retirement and into those kind of things, and I'm not saying any of those are wrong, but if our security is there, we are operating with the strategy that is outside the bounds of the playing field that glorifies God and helps us to be his disciples. The second thing that is in this passage is about wives. Must not take many wives. What would that have been about? Isn't one plenty? Uh, most of us would think so, right? Uh, and he says, you are not to take wives. Well, the idea was that if you had a neighboring village or country, uh, if you took their wife, if they gave the daughter of the leader to you, then maybe you wouldn't kill the in-laws, right? Maybe we shouldn't talk about that here today. 
the in-laws and the outlaws and all that kind of stuff. But the idea is you're not going to kill your in-laws. So if you make a pact, you intermarry so that these alliances help to build and give security. How did Solomon do at that? Not so good, right? Uh, he had uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. It says 700 wives of royal birth. So he's making all of these alliances with the people around him. And my thought here is, as we try to apply that to us, who is it that we make alliances with? whether it's in the classroom or whether it's on your first assignment or it's at work, are we making alliances with the proper people and how does that influence our lives and our walk with Christ and our journey with Him? Alliances with ungodly sources are off the playing field. It's a strategy that we are not to engage in. We are not to go there. Uh, our wives are to be people that lead us and help us towards God. But as uh, Solomon gathered these 700 wives, what did they do? They led him and his heart away from God, right? All of these alliances. So we need to pay attention to the alliances that we make if we are to do what God would have us to do. The third one here is that you are not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Again, this is something that takes our heart away from God. It's something that absorbs our energy and our effort and our time. There's nothing wrong with money, per se, right? You learned this in class. It's the love of money that is out of bounds, right? When money becomes more important to you than saving the lost, when money is more important than answering to God, it's more important than having a relationship with God, now it's a problem, right? And so, how did uh, Solomon do with this? Well, the scripture tells us in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 that uh, each year he got 666 talents of gold from various places. I checked, uh, and in January prices, that's uh, $2,090,000,000 every year that Solomon was taken in. I thought that was a lot of money until I figured out that in 7,847 years that would pay off our national debt. Uh, and so maybe it's not quite as much as I thought. But $2 billion, $90 million a year coming in. And I wish we had time to go into that because he was receiving 666 which is something short of perfect. It's left something in his heart to be desired. He wanted more. 
it wasn't enough, even though he was getting $2 billion a year? Does that sound like any articles you hear in the newspaper today about CEOs and greed and not about us, of course, but others, right? Two, two billion, 90 million. Uh, do you love money? The strategy of loving money and securing your future through the love of money is outside the bounds of what it is that God intends for you as his servant. Not that he doesn't want you to, be, uh, ha to have money. I don't know if he does or not. But the love of money certainly will lead us astray. The fourth one is one that hits closest to home for me. The king was not to make the people return to Egypt. What would that be about? Certainly it wasn't about geography, right? It's not a big deal to travel back to another country. So what is he talking about here, about not going back to Egypt? In Egypt, they were slaves, were they not? And so he's talking about, don't take these people and lead them back into slavery. And as a leader, we don't want to lead people into slavery. We're about helping them be released from slavery. But again, what does this King Solomon do? We read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, here is the account of the forced labor of King Solomon. King Solomon went so far that he, he forced labor from the Israelites to build the temple of God. And I wish we had time to kind of sit here for a minute. Because this is the one that I think comes closest to home. We don't come into ministry in the Nazarene church thinking that we're going to be billionaires and that we're going to have uh, huge 401ks and retirement plans and all of that kind of stuff. We aren't about making alliances with lots of people to secure our security. Uh, hopefully we're not uh, too much in love with money, but we love to have the control of, the, of whatever it is we're in charge of, right? My question to you is, who's in bondage to you? And as you go forth and you lead an organization, who is in bondage to you? They tell us uh, January 11th was uh, National Human Trafficking Day, and they claim that 20 to 30 million people in this world are in slavery as we speak right now. Don't make the people return to Egypt. Sometimes the unintended consequences of the things we learn and the way we deal with people and the way we lead causes people to return to slavery. Uh, it bothers me when I go to churches and I hear 
the pastoral staff get up and talk about we versus they. We, the pastoral staff, are doing this and this and this, and they, the people, are... No. The Ephesians 4 says that we are to equip people for ministry. We are all in this together. We are all to be reconciling the world as it is groaning, as it is pregnant. We are to bring it and reconcile it to the Lord through our work and through our labor and through our leadership. We are not to return people to slavery. And I know you can slough this off, but if you look at what Solomon did, we have a tendency to do those same kind of things. Forced labor, building the kingdom of God. God has always had a heart, and he always hears the cry of the oppressed. In Exodus 22, he says, Do not mistreat or oppress the foreigners, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with false charge. And do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I will acquit, acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Do not oppress the foreigners. You yourself know how it feels to be foreigners. God always hears the cry of those who are oppressed. And when we become the oppressor, whether in the name of Christ or not, we are in trouble. So, here are the things that, the strategies, if you will, the behaviors that are out of bounds. Security and trust outside of God's provision. Alliance with ungodly sources. The love of money. Mistreating or oppressing others. All of these strategies are outside the playing field of God's purpose for us. If I had time tonight, I would take you through the next few verses that gives the prescription for what it is that we are supposed to do. And just quickly, I'll let you read it here. It says, When he takes the throne of the kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this laws. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to revere the Lord and follow carefully. And not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. I would like to say to you this evening that there are a lot of strategies for doing God's work. These are four that are outside of the realm of possibility if you are working to be in right relationship with God. These are ones that you need to steer clear of. And if you will do that, I'm convinced that he will bless your effort. He will bless your desires and give you the de desires of your heart as you enable and as you 
lead people to be reconciled unto him. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We pray that you would help these things to speak to our hearts and change our behavior. If not today, at least in the future, as you put us in places where it is applicable. We ask you to deliver us from the fear of the future and give us sound minds as we endeavor to be pleasing to you and to worship you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Go in his peace.